Well, kids, I hope you have a, a great time in the back. Uh, if you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew uh, chapter 2. Got one more sermon left in the Christmas season. One more, if you can hang in there with me before we start something new um, in the new year. Uh, if you've been with us uh, throughout the Advent season, we've been looking at um, the miracles uh, that surround uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. And we started with um, uh, the story of Mary's conception, where she is visited by the angel Gabriel, who said to Mary, uh, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And as we saw, uh, Mary responded with just remarkable faith uh, to this news from the angel Gabriel. We then moved on to Zechariah and Elizabeth. We talked about how Elizabeth was barren, and then she was with child. Zechariah lost his speech. Uh, he gained it back. Uh, the third week, we looked at the shepherds being visited by the angels who brought good tidings of great joy to these lowly shepherds. We talked about how if, if, this, uh, if uh, there was a social ladder, uh, the message of Jesus's birth didn't come to those who were at the top of the social ladder, but came to the very bottom, to those who were considered uh, unclean and a little rough around the edges. Uh, hopefully you're able to join us for Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, we talked about uh, the central miracle of the Christmas story, the, the incarnation. Um, God comes in the flesh. The infinite becomes particular. God laying in a manger. And how we talked about how this was the miracle uh, that is behind all the other miracles. And all throughout, we've questioned, does God still do this? Does God still perform miracles? Does he still work in the extraordinary? And maybe a more practical question, uh, can God do something extraordinary and miraculous in your life and in your story? How does the, the Christmas story connect with your story? And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at one last miracle. And we touched on it last week. We want to finish it this week. Um, but even as I preface this story, they say whenever you go to a party, uh, talk about whatever you want to talk about, but never talk about religion and politics. Never talk about religion and politics. Well, we're going to talk this morning about both of those two things. We're going to talk about religion and politics uh, because the Christmas story, if you read it in all the different accounts, really has a lot of political overtones to the story, and it really forces us to reflect on it. Mark doesn't touch on it, John doesn't touch on it, but Matthew and Luke are very careful to describe a very tenuous political situation in which our Savior Jesus Christ was born. Luke tells us about Caesar Augustus and that he was reigning at the birth of Jesus. He was the emperor of Rome. Um, the most powerful person probably on the planet at that moment. Um, we know from history that uh, Caesar Augustus was uh, a great conqueror. Of course, he was the emperor of Rome. He was a brilliant political strategist. If you've ever studied his rise to power, he was brilliant and savvy in how he achieved his place of prominence. Um, in, in the Roman world at this point, he would be, even be considered a deity, uh, people would look at Caesar Augustus and they would say, that is the son of God. 
He is the savior of the world. We're used to hearing that language applied to Jesus, but people used that for Caesar Augustus as well because he was the center of this emperor cult, uh, obviously the most powerful man in the world. But the gospel writers introduce us to another man named Herod the Great. He was the tetrarch of the Jews. And what that means is that the Romans, in terms of how they govern, would establish these tetrarchs or vassal rulers. And we're going to read about Herod the Great this morning from Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read exactly what we read last uh, week on Sunday morning, but then we're going to read the remainder of Matthew chapter 2 as well. This is God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star They had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother And went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Father, uh, again, so thankful for the gift of worship today, Lord. And uh, I think of the, the song that we just sang about how you are our good father, one who protects and cares for your children, Lord. And we also reflect on the words we just uh, said, recited in the affirmation of faith, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that neither life nor death and all these other things will never be able to separate us from your love. Father, I pray that in the truth of the gospel, in the truth of your deep love for us as our good Father, that you would speak to us now through your word that it would be living and active, sharpening who we are and how we think and how we act, Father. We need your word to shape us more and more into your image, so we pray that the Spirit would come and accomplish that this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So this morning, I want us to use the, pretty much the same outline we used last week as we looked at this passage um, by looking at the man and then looking at the response and then looking at the miracle that God accomplished in this story and continue to ask the question, how should I respond to the miracle of the incarnation when it comes to my own life and when it comes to my own faith? But let's start by looking at the man. And as we saw last week, what Matthew's doing is he's trying to make a comparison between these wise men and Herod, and how they responded to the news of the birth of Jesus. Last week, we looked at these wise men, um, also called magi, um, these men who traveled a considerable distance from the east. They'd followed a star to find this new king, and we imagined their surprise when they turned up and found Mary and Joseph with a little baby lying in a nothing town. Certainly was not what they expected, and yet they fell down and they worshiped this new king and they offered him incredible gifts, gifts that were fitting of a new king. But there's another character in this story uh, who hears about this new king via the revelation of the wise men, and we learn that his name is King Herod. I think it is probably safe to say that King Herod is probably one of the most reprehensible men you will encounter in the Gospels and certainly in the narrative of Jesus' birth. So take for a minute and imagine some of the worst leaders that history has given us, uh, the most reprehensible and terrible leaders that history has given us, and I'd be willing to bet that King Herod would give them a run for their money. So who is this man? Who is this king of the Jews? Who is this man that figures so prominently in the birth narrative? Well, if you go all the way back to King Solomon, he was the the king that ruled all of Israel. And after his reign, the kingdom divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. And over decades and multiple kings, they diminished in their strength and their relevance and their influence. So much so that eventually the Assyrians and the Babylonians come and conquer the Israelites. Then come the Persians who enter in and conquer the Babylonians. Then the Greeks come along. And then lastly, the Romans come along and conquer this region. And so the Romans are in charge 
when the Gospels open up, this is 400 years after the end of the Old Testament. But it was Roman practice to set up these vassal leaders or these tetrarchs over the different provinces in their empire. And in Judea, where Jesus is born, these tetrarchs, these vassal rulers, were called the Herods. And Herod the Great was ruling when Jesus was born. We know that it was towards the end of his kingship, because he actually passes away in the narrative. We know that it's towards the end, and at the end, he's feeling very threatened by the tenuous political situation that he is in. Now, generally, almost everybody hated Herod the Great. The Jews hated him because he wasn't really Jewish. He was actually Idumean. He was a a descendant of Ishmael. And so the Jews hated him because he called himself the king of the Jews, even though he wasn't even ethnically Jewish. He would have a lot of limited power, which would always make him paranoid to keep the little power that he had. His name actually means offspring of a hero, but in our story, he certainly plays the role of a villain. He's known for his violence and bloodshed. Uh, He had many kids. He killed two of his own children for challenging his throne. Uh, We know that he had somewhere around 10 wives, which I always wonder, how do you handle Valentine's Day when you have 10 wives, right? But he had 10 wives, and he even seemed to marry two of his own nieces in order to consolidate power for himself. And so he was brutal, he was bloodthirsty, always paranoid about losing his power, that it was said that it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be a member of his own family. That's how paranoid and threatened he was. So just think about the character of this man for a moment. And you can imagine his surprise when um, a bunch of wise men from the east come in announcing the birth of a new king for the Jewish people. And that brings us to his response, which is brutal and is bloodthirsty. Uh, There's been a practice amongst churches. I learned about this, I think, last year, and I heard about it again this year. Uh, There's been a practice amongst a lot of churches to hold a service before uh, the actual Christmas day and Christmas Eve and to call it a blue Christmas service. Maybe you've heard about this before. Uh, But the blue Christmas uh, service is intended to be a service of lament, um, recognizing that the holidays are not uh, joyful for everyone. And for a lot of people, the holidays bring incredible sadness because maybe they've experienced some sort of loss or some sort of trauma. And so churches have hosted these blue Christmas services to to give people an opportunity to express their sadness and their lament before God. And I think in many ways, it's appropriate to think about that. Why? Because our passage reminds us that there is an incredibly sad story that comes along with the Christmas story. You see, these these wise men, they responded with worship, but Herod responded very, very differently. Any good, any faithful Jew should have been excited about this announcement. This is a descendant of David. This is the one we've been waiting for. Could this be the Messiah? 
but not Herod. That was not his response at all. He reacted the way he always did to threats. He reacted with violence. And his original conspiracy, as we read about in our passage, didn't really work out. So he had to launch into a very bloody plan B. And and church historians over the years um, have called this event the Massacre of the Holy Innocents. And uh, they've actually celebrated this in a feast called the Feast of Innocence. And this started way back in 485, where um, there's a service to particularly, usually on um, December 27th is the Feast of Holy Innocence. And it's celebrated in a lot of different traditions, the, the Coptic traditions and Eastern and Western traditions. And they remember this brutal story that we read about in Matthew ch- chapter 2. It's a hard story. It's, it's a gruesome story. It's one that we'd probably not want to think a lot about or dwell upon. And, and maybe that's why Matthew's the only one that tells the story. A lot of modern Christianity has shied away from stories like this, uh, opting to only talk about the cheery and palatable stories for fear that we might steal people's joy away. Uh, during the holiday season, during the Christmas season. But I believe that, that the church history is right, that it is important to at least tell this story, uh, to remember it, to, to allow it to even give expression to some of our own sadnesses and some of our own pain. Now, when you think about this story, it should sound a little familiar to you if you know your Bibles. Because way back in the book of Exodus, Israelite boys were threatened by another political leader, and his name was Pharaoh. And many Israelite boys were killed, but in the end of that story, Moses was spared. He was spared because God's people needed a great deliverer. Well, here a similar story plays all over again. Jesus is spared. Why? Because we, God's people, need an ultimate deliverer. But let's not gloss over the fact that many young children died in this story. It's interesting, if you read all the different commentators out there, some will say that the number of boys killed in this incident could be as little as 12. Now, I say little. Any loss of life is horrible. But some say it could be as little as 12 boys were killed and as many as 140,000 boys executed, taken from their mothers and fathers on the spot. And so whether it's 12 or 140,000, you can only imagine parents weeping in the streets because of the loss of their sons. Weeping and loud lamentation were the sound that filled the streets. The history of Christianity has called these boys the holy innocents, the first martyrs that were killed in the name of Jesus Christ. For all those fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles left behind, the only song that they could sing was a song of lament. And our passage even tells us the song in verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That song, those words, 
were taken from the prophet Jeremiah, who himself was called the weeping prophet. That was how he was characterized, as a prophet who wept. And it's a great reminder that the Bible never shies away from sadness, never shies away from it. A lot of modern Christianity doesn't like to talk about the sad moments of the Bible, uh, feeling like it always needs to be happy and celebratory, but the Bible never shies away from expressing sadness and pain. All you have to do is page through the book of Psalms, right? And the book of Psalms is is a song book. And every human emotion is represented in the book of Psalms. And even the sad songs are there. Uh, In Psalm uh, 6, it says these words. David writes, I am weary with all my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. This is just one of many psalms that express sadness and lament. In fact, there's a whole Bible book called the Book of Lamentations, of lamenting over the sadness of life. And Jesus was no different. There were multiple points in Jesus' life when he was overcome with sadness and tears. It's a passage where it tells us that he wept over the city of Jerusalem as he looked over it. He went to the grave of uh, his friend Lazarus, knowing that he was about to bring him back from the dead, and still he wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. It's a great reminder that there are times in life where it feels like the only songs worthy of the playlist are sad songs. And this can especially be true during the holiday season. You know, we we sing songs like Joy to the World and and lots of songs that talk about joy. And every Christmas movie we seem to watch resolves very happily and very wonderfully. And we celebrate light shining in darkness. But for many people, the holidays are just something to be survived, something to endure, something to get to the other side. Maybe it's because... They've lost a loved one that year, and it's the first Christmas they're celebrating without them. Or, or maybe it's because Christmas comes at the end of a long and painful and difficult year. Maybe there's a dissatisfaction with life that just hasn't lived up to the ideal of what you had hoped for. And so maybe there's lots of loneliness, lots of grief. Maybe it feels like the only song that we can sing is a song of lament. Whenever I've looked at this passage and when I, when I reflected on it this week, I always come to the question of why. Uh, the why of it all. Why did these children need to die? Why did their fathers and mothers need to continue to live a life without their children? Why was Herod allowed to wield such power? Why didn't the Romans step in and stop Herod from doing this? And I think that why question, those why questions, that's what makes our pain and lament so difficult because we're often left with so many unanswered questions in the midst of our sadness. And so the Bible never shies away from sadness. It never shies away from lamentations, but it is always quick to lead us to the miracle of hope. 
That's what I want to look at lastly this morning, the miracle that comes in the midst of this sadness. In verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, meaning the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So in many ways, now Mary and Joseph and Jesus become political refugees. As tough as life was for them, already in that moment, they now need to uproot themselves and move to a strange area in a foreign land. Those of you that have had kids, you know that the most important thing when you have kids is to have a network of people around you to help you with this newborn child, whether it's family or friends. They would have none of that. No family around them. No extended network to help them with this young child. And yet, what do they do? They respond with obedience once again to another divine disruption a disruption from the hand of God. Then it says in verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, now rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And so Jesus was miraculously spared from execution. This time, Jesus would be miraculously spared from execution. But as we read the Gospels and as we study and know the life of Jesus, we know that in the end, he would succumb to another political attempt at execution. At the end of his life, the Romans and the Jews would conspire together to bring about his downfall. And no miracle would save him this time. He could have called the angels down from heaven to save him on the cross, but no miracle would come. No angels would come to his rescue. And he endured it all for you and for me. Just as our pain and sadness is not the final word, his pain and sadness on the cross would also not be the final word. If the incarnation is the miracle at his birth, then the resurrection would be the miracle at the end. It would be the miracle at the end. And so you may wonder, as you're sitting here this morning, does God still perform miracles? Does he still do the extraordinary? Does he operate outside of the normal? And of course, the answer is yes. Because of the miracle of the incarnation and the miracle of the resurrection, he can perform something miraculous in your life and in mine. He can visit you with his mercy. He can visit you with his grace. He can visit you with his salvation. And he can even transform your weeping and your sadness into joy and celebration. Let's pray.